from the Finley Toyota Studio, it's Cofield and Company. Harkless with eight on the clock straight away. Comes down the left side, spins, throws the ball to Gilbert, right side for a three. It's good! Keyshawn knocks it down, and the Rebels have a three-point lead, 47-44. Now Iwako knocks the ball away. It's stolen by Harkless. Harkless passes underneath Iwako. Iwako back to Harkless on the left side. A three for EJ is good. 50 to 44 Rebels, and they've gone on a run. It's time for Cofield and Company with Steve Cofield on ESPN Las Vegas. Field and Company here on a Wednesday, busy Wednesday, Legal Insider. Justin Watkins in in the middle of the show. Caleb Herring talk about some quarterbacking coming up in just a little bit. We'll do some G League Ignite. Of course, Vegas Golden Knights. More of the unraveling publicly of the Raiders who are kind of a laughing stock around the country. And you hear some running rebel highlights coming in. Mixed bag last night locally. Mixed bag. The most successful team in the market outside of the Aces who won a championship. The Knights were on fire and all of a sudden have uh, hit some... Road bumps here. We'll get to that in five minutes. But running Rebels win last night. I know you were covering the hockey game. Rebels beat Dayton 60-52. to It looked ugly early. Yep. looked like they were overmatched big time. They were down 10 at the half and fought back in the second half. And the formula is sort of what we explained to everyone in the offseason when they built this team. I think they were building it in the image of many of these successful teams around the Mountain West Conference last year. The Rebels got pushed around, looked small, couldn't defend at the level other teams. And the team that you you know, you know, need to beat in the conference is San Diego State. And I'm not saying this Rebel team is San Diego State, but the team is kind of built in that image, which is we're going to play D. No yeah. matter what, the defense is coming. And no matter what, you better take care of the ball. And no matter what, get ready for physical play. And it was almost like a like a football running game. The effect of bumping and battering and bruising that went on in the first half, even against a big Dayton team, Dayton kind of looked worn down and couldn't take care of the ball in the second half and couldn't make a shot. And amazingly, think about this, Dayton was 5 of 20 for an entire half of basketball, 5 of 20 in the second half. They scored 16 points in the first 16 minutes. They scored 20 points over the 20 minutes. They made one two-point field goal, one two-point field goal, and UNLV closed out the game. Again, like San Diego State does, down the stretch, the last five minutes, Dayton had nothing. So, big win. Team that was highly regarded, number 21 team in the country, and uh, Rebels get it done against a ranked team on their home floor. First time they've done that since 2014. So, you say that to win in this conference, right, to follow the model of what San Diego State, but let's not forget about a program that dominated the Pacific Coast Athletic Association, the Big West, the Western Athletic Conference, the team that was coached by a guy named Jerry Tarkanian, who is known for, yes, they're the running Rebels, but the Amoeba defense, his defensive mind, uh-huh. the evolution of how college basketball, this that that was that's the foundation of what everybody's been clamoring about. When are we going to get back to the historic? And I'm not about to jump head first off of a win over Dayton and saying, we're back, like the late 80s, early 90s, but... That's where it starts. That's where it begins. That's at the foundation of what Jerry Tarkanian taught at this school defense, and it turned into running rebels in transition. So it's good to see 
because you've been saying it. You're out there. You've been out there since training camp started. A couple of the other reporters that have been out there, the guys from here, um, that, yeah, w- the, the question isn't about defense. It's, it's apparent what Kevin Kruger's trying to do. It's where's the offense going to come from? I kind of just kept my mouth shut because I'm not in a position to talk about the players. I'm not out there. I'm not watching them. I don't see them. I'm not following the recruiting process. But what I do know is this. A lot of offense from a lot of scrappy teams, you know where it comes from? Defense. Mm-hmm. You stop teams, you move in transition, you get you provide your your offensive end of the ball with opportunities, offense will come. Guys will score. You may not have purebred shooters and scorers, but if your team is built around defense, you don't need purebred score. You don't need a plethora of them. So it appears last night that they came together. I was following it as best I could on Twitter while I was at T-Mobile and seeing the pe- different people tweet about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's good on them because that's what that's what you do. Eventually, yeah, you want 40 minutes of basketball. But when you're down on your home court and you can make a run, make the right adjustments, come out at halftime, play defense, shut down a nationally ranked team, good on you. By the way, I will clarify one thing. Yes. When I talked about the way Kevin Kruger built the team, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the image of some other successful Mountain West teams, I didn't say that is the way to win. No, 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 no. So I just want I, no. I just want to point that out because I, I think there is an active debate. Yeah. Do you beat San Diego State by being San Diego State light, or do you beat San Diego State by being hyper awesome on offense? I think that's still a question to be answered. And we noticed when the Mountain West Conference got into the NCAA tournament, most of the teams actually didn't do well. Mm-hmm. The defense carried over, but the offense was so bad that most of the teams fell short. Uh, But to your point about where's the offense going to come for the Rebels, I don't think they're going to average 25.6 turnovers forced a game because they've forced 77 now. They did it again last night against Dayton, but a lot of points do come off of that. Uh, You beat the hell out of the other team, so they become less effective defensively. But I was was asking the whole uh, preseason and early in the season, who's going to be the alpha and – uh, I was answering my own question. I know who's going to be the alphas, at least I thought, and Keyshawn Gilbert's one of them. I didn't think he would shoot the three ball this well. I think he's now six of nine in the last two games, so he's completely reworked his shot. The guy made seven threes all of last year as a freshman, but I've said all along, once healthy, based on what I saw, even though he wasn't shooting well in the first two games, that EJ Harkless would be one of the alphas, and yesterday when they needed it, I mean, they were they were close to getting blown out. And when they needed it, he made some big shots. And then when they went on the run to take the lead and then put the game away, he made free throws. Um, he also, I think he in the, in the end, not only Alpha scoring, but Alpha defensively, I think he drew four offensive fouls. I think he drew like seven fouls for the game. So he's a guy who will get in there. He was a, That was a big team, Dayton. And he was, he was laying his body out there to get smashed and draw charges. How, how was the what – what, what I'm curious is because is the important thing really right now – Right, during non-conference play, leading up to conference play, is what your guys are doing productively, efficiently, off the bench for those key six to eight minutes collectively. How the bench? The, well, the first. It was two- interesting last night. He really cut down on the bench. Second half, he went with basically six guys. And if you look at the minutes logged, I think the lowest among the starting five was 27. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vicky Waco got some time in the second half. Jackie Johnson almost got no time until the final couple of minutes. Um, Jordan McCabe didn't get a whole lot of time. So he shortened the bench and he went with the guys who were, who were playing well. And it, it could work last night because Dayton uh, is shorthanded. So yeah, the bench is still a work in progress. I think Jackie Johnson's going to be an amazing scorer off the bench. McCabe's got to get better. 
Um, he's got to take care of the ball. He did a great job of that last year. And then they're going to have to manage their big man minutes until Cottrell is back, and hopefully he's back like the first week in December. And then it's a different-looking team when you add yeah. another 6'10", 245 into the mix. So VGK, this unreal start, and then you come back home against two teams that are – I know the Sharks are a rival. The Blues weren't playing well, but, you know, apparently decent team. What happened these last two games? What happened last night? You know, it the same thing that happened in the first game, I felt. They were clearing the puck well last night. They were doing As a matter of fact, it, it was weird because I was talking to a couple of the reporters. I was asking them, you know, why the big question last year with DeBoer was clearing the puck and especially off rebounds right in front of the net. What What is it about Cassidy's? What are they doing? And they really broke it down for me. It just kind of like and actually pointed and and spelled it out and showed the placement on the ice. And it was funny because I was asking it while they were playing fantastic hockey the first half of the game. And it's the zone defense. And what you saw happen toward the end is Logan Thompson facing a plethora of shots. And on the second goal that tied the game, Sharks' second goal, three guys get caught below the goal line. They were not in their zone defense. So... I don't know what it is and why they're they the last two games, you know, by the middle of the second period and third period that they seemed too relaxed. They seemed I don't I don't know if content is the right word, but they just they lost their edge defensively, allowing the opposition to put more shots on goal and cause havoc around the net. And that's what you want to do. I mean, the goal that Matt Nieto scored was I mean, he was just there by himself off a rebound where in the first part of the game, and just like in the first period of, of the last game, they would clear that it with their zone defense. So they got a lot of work to do in just in terms of staying focused for 60 minutes. Maybe it was the long road trip. I don't know. They're not going to make excuses for them. They, they should have won both games. I can give away one of those two. Both probably unacceptable in Bruce Cassidy's mind and the players' minds. Um, they got Arizona coming in Saturday. You know they 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 need to they need to probably win that game before they hit the road because they got a couple in Canada they're going to be dangerous and the last thing you want to do is hit a little bit of a lull here and go on a losing skid you can salvage this homestand with a Saturday night win then you can go on the road with a little bit back a little bit of your swagger back three six four eleven hundred caller seven right now tickets to go see Pink coming up in twenty twenty three tickets go on sale this uh, coming Monday at ten a.m. Ticketmaster.com Ticketmaster.com Pink at the Al in 2023, your chance to win some tickets from Ari right now. 364-1100. Caller 7 is he pink. Follow the guys on Twitter at Steve Cofield and at Willie G. Ramirez. Or tweet the show at Cofield and Co. Three, the Cooper turns a corner. Moreno Cooper stretches and he is in for the touchdown. Now on first and ten. Drop it in for Moreno Cropper, who has a touchdown. Fresno State breaking free. This one goes for 65 from Hayner to Jalen Moreno Cropper. Former UNLV quarterback and current voice of the Rebels on radio, Caleb Herring is live right now on Cofield and Company. Moreno Cooper, Moreno Cropper, whatever you want to say it, it's Cropper. CBS Sportsnet with the call there. Uh, depressing plays. Nice melancholy holiday music there. Little peanuts. Willie Ramirez, Cofield. Caleb Herring is up with us. Yeah, those plays were kind of rough, Caleb. Uh, not good. Not good on the tackling on the uh, Moreno Cropper plays. I'm, at first, I'm not going to gloss over the fact that that was that 
melancholy holiday music uh-huh. put me in the spirit. And yeah, me, yeah, like, I, I know. I just, I, I'm so ready for Christmas. Um, thanks, Yes, nothing better. So. It, it it did match though perfectly well with the the kind of melancholy that happened when you watch Moreno Cropper make play after play and and knowing that it was coming right like we talked about it before the game and how Moreno Cropper formerly known as Just Cropper kind of had his way with UNLV in years past and he's been a, a thorn in the side of the Rebels for it seems like five years but um, knowing that it was coming and then watching it happen, I, I definitely feel the melancholy of that of that Christmas song, which is weird because I'm happy about the music on one end. But then, you know, context matters. Cropper had his way and it, it was tough to watch. So Jordan Morgan, poor angle on one of them, I think you can explain it. That was a 33 yarder on a fourth down. Um or no, a long third, uh, thirty-three yarder, and then the sixty-five yarder, which just took all the momentum back from UNLV after Aiden Robinson popped off a sixty-six yard run. A really good throw, but again, Jare Williams had a tough time with the angle and really never coming close to the tackle. Yeah, the, the first one, like you said, it was the first drive of the game, and you know UNLV defensively actually was put up a good fight, like they did throughout most of the game. They they were they were competing, um, obviously going against a high-powered offense. But that was a third down situation. They were trying to get him off the field. There's a, a high pressure moment uh, and a crossing route for for Jalen Cropper gets him the space he needs. And he doesn't need much, but uh, one of the fastest guys on the team, if not the fastest guy. And I think Jordan Morgan's first time seeing him live. That was probably the first play he had a look at him in open space. Just took a poor angle coming downhill um, and and Cropper erased it and got down the sideline. And then, like you mentioned, the the the, the play with Jare Williams that ended up being the go ahead touchdown for Fresno after what was an emotional kind of rally from behind for UNLV. It wasn't a, a uh, as far as the points, it wasn't a, a dramatic comeback, but the touchdown and going for two um, that that preceded that play, I think, made that feel even worse. Right, like the the way that Fresno State just came out and instantly responded and reclaimed the lead after three plays uh, in that fashion. It was like a gut punch. And then I think Jare Williams, you know, one of the hardest playing players that we've had at UNLV on the defensive side of the ball in years. And he he has a motor. He's nonstop. He's passionate. He goes just about every play. Um, took maybe two seconds off, right, as, as, as Cropper's making that catch on the sideline, little back shoulder inside slot fade. Um, I You know, the thinking probably, and I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but is probably there's no way he stays in bounds after making that catch, right? Like he, it was an acrobatic catch by Cropper, uh, and there's no way he stays in bounds, right? The sideline's going to do my work for me here. Uh, and that wasn't the case. You know, you got to finish those plays, especially with dynamic players like Cropper. You got to make sure you finish the job. And, and unfortunately, he didn't. And 60 yards later, uh, we're, we're back down by six. And, and that's, that's kind of the way the cookie crumbled there for the Rebels late in that game. So a tough one, a very tough one. Uh, uh, it's tougher to lose, I think, when you expect to win, and it, it makes the losing hurt a little bit more um, when you expect it to win. And, you know, last year the close games were felt much more like uh, we're happy to be in a, a position to win. We're happy to to be close late. This year it feels like we should be up late. We should be finishing the deal off, and I think that that makes those locker rooms a little bit tougher um, after losses like Fresno State. I agree. They should be winning these games, and you know they had a chance to get back in it. Uh, even down 10 with like 2.45 left. They started running the two-minute drill to get down to go get a field goal or a touchdown. And after two plays, I hear Caleb on radio, 
and we're talking about you and all these lost 37-30 against Fresno, I hear Caleb on radio because I'm part of the radio team. I'm listening, and you just start melting down about the urgency and the pace of the two-minute drill. Yeah, I think there, there's some psychology to two-minute drills, especially when you know you got to do two scores, right? Like the, there has to be some buy-in to the to the to the to what you're trying to accomplish to, to the drive really and one of the ways that you can bat that is to get early completions right like find an easy one get it just get it started so that you can kind of spiral into some momentum as that you know stack a couple five yard plays together now your juices are flowing you feel like it's off off and running um i think for unlv what happened on that two minute drive they had a first down incompletion and then the second down play i think was a, a, a they tried to screen to Aiden Robbins out of the backfield. Um, I think he was actually lined up as a receiver and, and caught it as a receiver, trying to just, you know, like I said, find that momentum play to get the drive going. And on the second down play when they didn't get anything, I think it was even a loss of yardage on the play, I, I felt like the air left the sails. Like I felt like there was some letdown um, for that next play. Like players on the field, uh, maybe even just the fans, uh, players on the sideline even probably kind of started to look at things as if they were over and, and and given up, so to speak. I don't I don't use that term lightly, but there is sort of a, a realization that oh, it ain't working. We don't got it. And that's what you try to avoid on two minute drills. You want to have that momentum start with a nice five yard pickup here. The first first down to get things going so you can really get into your tempo, get in your rhythm, get the defense on their heels. Um, but if you don't have that play, it's easy for that that doubt to really seep in. And I felt like I saw that. And I, I, I admittedly I laid into it a little bit um, because it's it's one of those things that at this point in the season, um, with the way things have gone for the Rebels with this losing streak and with what's at stake here to finish up November, um, I would. And then you know, thinking about my time as a player, obviously my your career is winding down in some instances. Um, I, I I don't like to see or feel. Whether I'm wrong or not, I don't like to feel that players aren't taking the reps, uh, are taking reps for granted and aren't finishing through the finish line, so to speak. And I know that's not something that's a part of the culture. Coach Arroyo is, is, has made it, made it a point to not coach that way and to, to never have that be the, the mentality. And we haven't seen it as a problem. But I, I for, for a, a glimpse in time and during the end of that game, it felt like there was some, some give up. And, and for a couple of plays, the penalty, the holding penalty kind of revitalized it and got guys back. Uh, feeling it, but there's a stretch of a couple of plays there um, that I think I, I saw give up, and I, I didn't like the way it felt looking at it, especially with what that with what's at stake for this season. Um, and and listen, there's two more games left to figure it out, but the urgency is, as I call it sometimes, is it's got to be there uh, until there's triple zeros left. Because I, and I I I kind of went in on this perspective when there's triple zeros left on your career, there is no next week. And I kind of spoke from that angle, from that passion with it, um, having gone through it. I, I know what it feels like when when the clock hits zero and there is no next week. There is no next time. Um, so I that that kind of came out during that two minute drill. They they, they kind of were walking around like there was a next time. And, and I don't I don't really appreciate that too much uh, necessarily when I see it on the field. Speaking of former UNLV quarterback Caleb Herring here on Coldfield and Company, ESPN Las Vegas. So looking to next week or this coming week, they go to Hawaii. Um, you know, when you look at UNLV's defense, since this losing streak started, they've let they've allowed 37 or more in four of the five games. You're looking at a Hawaii team whose best offensive efforts outside of a 26-point performance in New Mexico State 
have been at home, two and two at home uh, in their last four there. They just threw 34 up on Utah State in a seven-point loss. How do they have to make sure that they don't overlook? This is one of the worst teams statistically on paper, but they can't. They they have to make sure that they sort of not get into any sort of doldrum that they've been in for these last five games. Well, I think the key is to not. It, it helps that the, these two games, regardless of who the opponent is, matter so much because that takes away the the proclivity to overlook anybody. Right? You have to win it. Um, so that helps. But I think this is one of those teams, Hawaii. That is dangerous, and and yeah, their record, their stats, and all that stuff um, are 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 what they are at this point of the season, right? We know that UNLV is, should be favored in this game coming into it by the odds makers and all that stuff. They are the UNLV is the better team, but right now Hawaii is a team that is sort of finding themselves in a lot of ways, especially offensively, um, as this season kind of rolls on. At least from a yardage and production standpoint, um, this is a team that enjoys playing against UNLV, and I think people forget about it. Um, obviously, it's been declared an official rivalry with, with a trophy at stake, the Ninth Island Trophy and all that. Uh, the Golden Pineapple stuff is now official. But this is a heated game, right? And for UNLV to finish the season with two really rivals is a, a tricky one because the emotions are always running high in these games. And being a part of them, uh, I would say, and for my time, it just depends on how lopsided the series was at the time. But this is one of the more – is probably a more intense game um, depending upon it from season to season, then the Reno game. And that, that, I don't say that lightly um, because the emotions are really high. These two teams just have a history, and there's something about it um, that that you never know when you're playing Hawaii, especially at Hawaii. They have an, an intimate atmosphere there, not a huge stadium from the numbers and noise standpoint, but they have fans that are in tune with their program. They want to see their program win. They will support. The travel is always an issue, unfolding and unwinding off of a long flight is always something to adjust to with the time travel. Um, it's always been a tough place to play for whoever goes there, right? There's there's teams that Utah, Utah State was up there last week and struggled a little bit with him on. So it's it's a dangerous game, and I, I think the reality of that should be enough to have the antennas for UNLV all the way up, especially on the defensive side. And I think going against Jake Hayner and the Fresno State passing attack last week is actually a good. Uh, kind of wake-you-up call, if you will, for UNLV defensively for what Hawaii may intend to do, spreading the ball all around the yard, kind of West Coast-style offense, spinning it a lot, throwing the ball. They found a running game late, obviously, but I think they they intend to try to make throw haymakers, and that's what they're going to do, and UNLV has to be ready for it. So by no means is this going to be an easy game. These last two um, are not going to be easy, um, but I think they should be expected to win if they come out laser-focused and, and, and executing the way they should. That should be the outcome should be UNLV on top. A lot more on UNLV football, UNLV football at UNLV All Access. That's our podcast that drops tomorrow. Caleb Herring and myself break down uh, basketball, football, other sports around the UNLV athletics world. Again, that's at UNLV All Access on Twitter and the Learfield Varsity podcast page. I got two minutes left, Caleb. So the floor is yours on Derek Carr crying and sniffling after this last loss. So, you know what? Initially, you appreciate the emotion that you see, and I get it. Um, I get the initial takes. I haven't seen everybody's take, you know, the talking heads that saw it. I haven't heard every take. I haven't read everybody's response to it. But there was a, a lot of initial takes saying that Derek Carr is pouring his heart out. He's showing how much he cares. He This is a guy that loves the game. And all of that may be true. But what I saw um, from from a player standpoint I did not see good leadership 
from Derek Carr in that moment. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I get being emotional. I get the game needs to matter. But in no way does that excuse creating a divide in the locker room. And that what he did was create a divide by saying some guys are willing to do these things and put these put these things in their bodies just to go to sleep at night. I'll never unhear that. The way he said that, um, some guys are willing to and some guys aren't. And the inferences could be made that he's talk he's talking about somebody in the locker room that's not willing to do it. And I don't think that's good leadership. And at a time like this, where your franchise kind of in disarray, if you're going to be the leader, yes, be emotional, show that it matters. But once you start throwing guys under the bus, so to speak, at the podium, um, it, it it becomes it becomes a different thing. And so I, that for, for me, that took away any um, any sense of authenticity of his emotions that were pouring out at that point. Um, and I so I didn't I didn't buy it. I just being honest, I didn't buy the production. I didn't buy the tears. I didn't buy because the message was lost in, in the finger pointing. The leaders leaders take accountability even when it's not theirs to take. Um, and they can do that with emotion. They can say how much it matters without putting other guys, at least questioning other guys publicly like that at the platform. I, I it didn't hit the the right place for me. And I I didn't, you know, I, I see Derek Carmer. I appreciate him as a player between the lines. I I, I respect him. I respect the hell out of him as a quarterback. Um, but I think that that one missed the mark a little bit too much for me to get on board with. And I don't know if everybody felt the same way. It seemed like people were buying it and, and seemed like he won a lot of brownie points in the media with it. But I, for me, I didn't, I didn't see how that helps the locker room at all with, with, with what he did at the podium. Caleb, good job. Talk to you tonight. Caleb's on the game, 7.30 pregame, 8 o'clock kick in Hawaii, UNLV football, taking on the Warriors. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, man. Have a good one. There he is, Caleb Herring. Reminder, over on Raider Nation Radio, if you want to hear about the Running Rebels, 5 o'clock each Wednesday is the Kevin Kruger Radio Show. Drinks, food, Bailiwick, Kruger, John Sandler, Curtis Terry, all hanging out, talking basketball and much more. It's the Kevin Kruger Radio Show. Raider Nation Radio 920 coming up this evening at 5 o'clock. Today after Cofield and Company, it's the Marcus Arroyo Radio Show at 6 p.m. right here on ESPN Las Vegas. We're all here because of him, and we all want to do right by him. You know, we knew when we came here that this is a longer-term view. The immediate results that we've gotten so far, they aren't what everybody's hoping for or wanting. It's not easy to get, but once you get it, how do you sustain it? And that's not easy either. He's been great to us, and I appreciate his support. I appreciate his long-term view on it, too. I really do. Now, back to Coalfield and Company in the Finley Toyota Studio. Josh McDaniels talking about fantastic job gate. Mark Davis saying that Josh is doing a fantastic job. Willie has uh, head in hands. I'm going to let him react. But now what you have around the country is um, because of what Mark Davis said, people are really fired up to go after Josh McDaniels. They already were. Now they're just crushing him. He has very few defenders out there. Now people are going back in time and they're like, why even make the freaking change? This was Stephen A. Smith kind of low talking and whispering. I was expecting an explosion, but he's just making his point. He uh, just doesn't understand what's happened to the Raiders over the last year. I could go to owner Mark Davis. What the hell did you get rid of Bisaccia for? He was seven and five, but you decided to get rid of him for the supposed boy wonder that used to be the head coach in Denver that Mm -hmm. stunk up the joint. But when you're a head coach, you're a leader of men. There you go. So a lot of, a lot of the talk is about X's and O's and that as a leader of men, Josh McDaniels lacks. And now your name calling now calling him the boy wonder. Here's uh, 
Keyshawn and Max on the ESPN National Morning Show. In the playoffs last year, a player two from advancing, they fired Rich Passaccia and brought in Josh McDaniels, you know, moved some pieces around on the roster, and here's the results. They were playing for Rich Passaccia. Whether or not he's considered an offensive genius or whatever, they were playing for him. They were playing for Passaccia. So now we're talking about effort, and then a minute ago you were just shaking your, your head at the answer of McDaniels. What didn't you like? I don't remember any – I don't ever remember being told oh, – we knew in the beginning this was going to be a long-term. I never that, heard that. that. It was a, this was a build. Yeah, I never heard that. I not never a rebuild, heard that. by the way, because they pointed out it's not a rebuild. It's a build. It's a build. This yeah, was yeah. a build that needed patience. Well, when you get rid of or don't sign X amount of defensive players and you get rid of your entire coaching staff, what it, it's you're, you, at some point you're rebuilding something. I'm not sure what the difference between build, rebuild, whatever the case is. I don't remember him saying this is a we knew at the beginning this was going to be a long – if if you knew at the beginning it was going to be a long term, what did you invest so much money in Hunter Renfro, Devontae Adams, D- Darren Waller, and Derek Carr, even if two of them are on one-year deals – Max Crosby, Chandler Jones, where's all this money going in if it's long term? If it, it isn't long term mean that you're and if it's a build, not a rebuild, if you're building, you're building, that means you're building from young to old. Don't you build in the draft? I mean, how many running backs did they take for a running back committee room that uh Josh Jacobs is is carrying all the bill? I mean, this kid's going to get hurt in a, in a, a year his fifth year option wasn't picked up. And you know, I want to go back to something that McDaniel said last week when we asked him what do you do to prepare for a guy that there's no game film on? How do you how do you and he said, Well, you know, I would imagine that he's gonna come in and probably let his coordinators do the job and 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 you know, let them sort of dictate and just and he's gonna coach, but you listen to your coordinators. If I remember correctly, last year, Rich Basaccia took over, but who had the reins? Greg Olson, Gus Bradley. It was a collective effort. Somebody with a control freak background from his days at Denver has completely came in and screwed this thing up. I've said it since day one when they're on their opening losing streak. I will continue to say it. Maybe you should let your coordinators do their job. Well, maybe not because I don't know about this defense now. But I, I don't know what's going on, but I am not about to put it on the players. I felt bad when Derek Carr walked in on Sunday about that press conference. I heard what Caleb had to say, but I will tell you this. And what I'm hearing over the past couple of days, it's one thing if you want to insinuate or whatever you want to insinuate. Those original words on Sunday, I'm still not sure if he was talking about the entirely about players, one player, or coaches. But what I'm hearing in the last couple of days, on these stories that are coming out, and if any of these sources are him, at that point, you better start calling your name. You better start calling your players out. Shut your mouth in the media. Quit talking to media members or give a name or go in the room and call those players out. Because now what you're doing is straight snitching and you're you're causing dissension in the ranks if that's what you're doing. And if it's him, he's wrong. Is there a chance that right before he came in the room all weepy and sniffling that he called out some guys and they made him cry? Oh, I think that they definitely. Like I don't they think got him. They got him so upset that then he walks in because there was there was a big gap, right? There was a, a more sizable gap than normal before nah. Carr came in. No, I thought there was a little extra time. I don't know because I've never gone straight to the media room. I've, I've never gone straight to the press conference after the home game. I've always gone to the locker room. 
and then gone upstairs and rewatched the YouTube. I just wonder if there was a throwdown so and he I, actually I, called out guys to their faces and they came back at him and then no, I don't, he tried to settle I, no, down, but no, he was still no, upset no. and his feelings were hurt. No. I think I think it was the leader meeting that he talked about where the team leader stood up said what they had to say and then someone probably maybe said and but then we know that there was there is a rumor there's I, I don't know I, I'd be out of place to talk, I'd be out of place to talk about this but apparently there were arguments and there were players going back and forth there's a there's a video on YouTube from the Raiders page. Raiders YouTube page where you can see in the background and there's voices in the background telling others to calm down. So there what there's there was some anger besides cars, crocodile tears in the locker room after the game. Join Cofield and Company on Thursdays for the live 2 to 5 show at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino. During all NFL games this season, get 77 cent beers. It's Thursday night football at Silver 7's Flamingo in Paradise. Anderson now running the point as he drives, bounce pass. Oh, a boogity, massive throwdown dunk with the right hand as he's got the bounce pass on the right baseline from Anderson to two steps and flushes it. Now, back to Cofield and Company in the Finley Toyota studio. We'll get back to the Raiders in just a couple minutes. Let's talk about one of our uh, exciting local teams. We haven't had a chance to check in on the Ignite. They've got some tremendous stories on this G League squad. And Ben Wilson is with us. He's the voice of the Ignite, local broadcast voice on a lot of different teams. Ben, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm good. I, I have to give uh, your producer, Ari, a shout-out. Uh, first off, for that, that lovely, lovely clip you pulled. Uh, I, basically, I had the classic case of uh, being very sick last week and had basically no voice on the broadcast, which, as you know... Uh, both of you gentlemen, especially you, Steve, from Colin Games, it's like the worst feeling in the world. So Ari was basically the ultimate hype man uh, last Friday night. Like every every break, he's like, you got this, man. You're, you're doing great. And uh, so we we got go. through it. But, uh, it's, it's been a blast so far. We're, we're just a few games in. But, yeah, as you said, a lot, lot of great stories on the team. So talk about the biggest story on the team, and, and that is uh, some of the young guys and especially a guy who might be a top five pick in the NBA draft. No question. Yeah. Scoot Henderson, who when he was signed, so he's on the second year of, of his contract. I think some of the thing people might not know is for a lot of these young players, they'll actually sign two year deals. So they'll they'll actually leave like Henderson. He finished his high school work uh, a year early. So his his first year with the team was is a, a senior in high school last year. And, wow. and this is now his second year. So he's the equivalent of a, a college freshman. So for a lot of these guys, like they come in, they put up incredible high school numbers, and there's really three of them now who are projected uh, first round picks. And, and Anderson is is kind of the cream of the crop. But when they signed him, the coach at the time was Brian Shaw, who's now an assistant for the Clippers. But he was the first guy who came in, and he he very he very nonchalantly said, "Yeah, you know, he's he's got a lot of uh, Russell Westbrook in him, and you know, you're talking about a 17 year old." And you kind of go, all right, that's you know, that's nice, that's that's cute. And then you watch him play, and it really like, he really reminds you a lot of <laughs> Russell Westbrook with the tenacity on both ends of the floor. So he's played in five games so far. Uh, he scored twenty five in four of the five games and had sixteen assists in the other. So if it were not for Victor Wembanyama, who for people who don't know, that's the, the consensus number one overall pick in the draft next year. 
I mean, Henderson is NBA ready. Like it, it, he's 18. It's absolutely insane what he's doing on a night to night basis. Um, so that's the, I mean, that's been the big story so far and he's checked every box at least at this point. Were you at the showcase? The, uh, the two days of, uh, Weminyama? It was, yes, it was absurd, uh, to watch <laughs> that guy in person, like seven, four, and it didn't really even, it doesn't even do justice just watching him on, on TV. It was, it was pretty remarkable to see. And, uh, and you know, the scouts were there just kind of fawning over him and I mean, basically everybody there, uh, for a guy to be that polished too. And, and to be that young as well, it was pretty, pretty impressive. But that it goes to show, I mean, the, the, the matchup between those two, like they went right at each other, which was fun to see. They, they were not backing down Henderson and Wembenyama. Uh, pretty surreal that those are probably your one-two picks, and and they were playing right in our backyard. Am I crazy if I liken it to the 2019 draft? And I remember talking about Zion Williamson and having worries that at you know six six and whatever he can be at times, 340 pounds when he's in shape, he's three, he's 270. And you know, I was mentioning John Morant might be the better player. Is there going to be a discussion before the draft? I mean, I, I assume there's going to be some people who start to get a little bit scared of the the frame and, you know, at that height and then right. trying to play on the perimeter. Will there be an active discussion to take Scoot ahead of Webanyama? I I can't see that happening. I, I think a lot of it, too, is, I mean, the comps on Webanyama, there's been a lot of the, you know, the Giannis or Kevin Durant type talk. And the big concern for him and, and I think the main thing people want to see is just filling out his frame and, and developing, right? He, you know, he, with how tall he is, he just looks like a twig basically. But I think now that we've seen like the way Giannis was able to fill out his body and the way that Wembenyama so far, I mean, he's avoided all major injuries. He's just destroying the the French league that he's in right now. I don't think we're going to get that far. I mean, and, you know, and with Henderson, I'll be curious to see, you know, for him, he's, he's only six, two, I mean, he's 18, but he, he he plays so much higher, and he's such an, a tremendous athlete. So I, I wonder. I still think it would it would take a lot, uh, unless you see some sort of injury for him and Yama this year. I, I just think all the scouts you talk to are so over the moon with Victor that that's going to be the guy. But whoever ends up number two, I think that's been the kind of underreported thing. Everybody's talking about all the teams in the NBA tanking for Wemby Yama getting number one, but like that number two prize, I think most people consider. It's more like a 1B as opposed to a big drop-off from 1 to 2. Talking about the Ignite, play-by-play voices. Ben Wilson, he's on Cofield and Company, the Ignite play over at Dollar Loan Center. When are you guys back home? We are back uh, Friday, actually. So uh, next game, 645, is when we uh, we go in the air Friday against Salt Lake. Uh, a lot of I'll say this, a lot of points. There's not a ton of defense yeah. in the G League, <laughs> which makes it fun. That's a very up-and-down fun games. Well, the makeup of this roster is crazy. When I looked at it, I'm like, You've got 18, 19, and 20-year-olds, and then you've got guys who are pushing 40 as sort of player, mentor, coach on the floor, right? Yeah, it's it really is meant to be you're either in that complete prospect teenager role or you're in the, the mentor role. And that's not to say that some of the older guys you know don't have NBA aspirations or trying to get back, but it's really what it is. And so it, it's interesting when you talk to the front office personnel there, just the balance between trying to win versus trying to develop guys. I mean, winning is certainly not like, it, you know, it, it's not like people are getting fired, right? If the Ignite don't make the playoffs. I mean, the whole goal is to develop as many draft picks as they possibly can. They had uh, three last year, uh, three, the and there were six overall uh, picks here each of the last two seasons. And this, but I mean, this is the first year though, that they have played a full 50 game G league schedule. First year they've been in Las Vegas. So it's kind of wild to watch, you know, the vets who are, yeah, like they're definitely not guys who are they're going to be in the NBA yet. Like they still have game. I mean, Aubrey Dawkins and John Jenkins have been really like legitimate players who 
I have spent time. I mean, J Jenkins is, uh, has the most NBA experience of anybody on the team. He's played, you know, six years and like those guys still have games. So it's, it's not like it's, it's sort of like a charity just for the young guys. But as you point out, it makes for a really um, interesting dynamic and, and just watching the development. Uh, CD Sissoko and Leonard Miller, those are the other two guys right now who are the, are the first round projected picks. And, and they're both teenagers. They're also 18, just like Henderson. And, and they're just as developed, I mean, as, as Scoot in a lot of ways. It's been, it's been pretty wild to watch when you consider uh, just how young they are. What do you think Shaq's son, Sharif, is going to do with his career? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, quandary for him because of all the health concerns he had. I mean, had heart surgery at UCLA and then you know, foot injury at LSU. Really, never got off the ground. And you can tell though, like it's six ten and he's only twenty two. The upside is there. Uh, he's been more of a, a bench guy so far. They haven't got him involved a ton, but I think for for guys like that who are in that that in between, there's there's still a sense that you know, they have a future. Maybe not in the league per se, but. Like there's going to be opportunities to get either the 10 day contracts or really good European contracts. And it, it's sort of hard to know with, uh, with Sharif so far, he's, he's shown flashes and, and that's kind of the theme with a lot of the, uh, the guys who are outside of the prospect group. Like they're all good enough. It's just, can they put enough together to, to really get a shot there? And I think that's what we're waiting to see with Sharif. Uh, last one. You did some lady rebels games in the past. What do you think? What do they have to do this year with this team to win games in the NCAA tournament? Because that's a goal. Make the, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, no, you know, it's sink or sink or swim. So cool. You got to make the tournament, and then it's time to win games. Right? No, it's it's been incredible to to watch the growth. And when I yeah, when I moved here, it was 2019. So, uh, see, you know, seeing Lindy come in and and how quickly she's been able to uh, to change the program. You know, look, certainly the I mean, the obvious emphasis you could tell when when she came in was on the defensive end of the ball, defensive side, and really figuring out a, a like a general team-wide flow and I think from her background at Stanford you always knew though like the defense has to come first but you also need consistent scoring and you know as, as good as they've been able to bring in you know the new players over the past couple of years you've had you've sort of had that sense at times that especially against the elite teams once they've gotten into the tournament that finding the crucial basket at the crucial moment has been lacking and that's always something especially in the uh, the women's game when you when you go up against the the power five type teams like, you know, like they did last year going to Arizona in the tournament, that's always going to be the thing. So I, well, having watched their games and I'm good friends with Wyatt, the play-by-play -play guy there, uh, been super impressed with, with the offense they brought in. I, I really hope that they can uh, sustain that, but I mean, what a, what a job she's done in just the first couple of years. Ben, great spot, man. We appreciate your availability and uh, let's get you on and talk a little ignite down the road. Okay. Absolutely. Sounds good. Appreciate it. There he is. Ben Wilson, play-by-play -play voice of the G league Ignite also works over at VSIN. Can I tell you the one of the coolest things about the G League is all the introduction of the international players, which you already know, Willie, the impact of late eighties and early nineties NBA entry into the Olympics. You've you know, you've kind of seen the result. Two thousands basketball with uh Kobe Bryant and the spread of the game further internationally. I'm at Thomas and Mac last night. There's two Kobe's on Dayton. One was Kobe Elvis, which is the greatest thing ever to hear John Sandler say, Elvis is doing this, Elvis is doing that in Las Vegas. They had a kid on Dayton named Mike Sharavjams, Mongolian Mike, first Division I player from Mongolia. My Lord, this kid's 6'8", and he's playing the small forward at an Atlantic 10 school. I don't know how they got him. I think he's a future professional basketball player, maybe NBA. 
one of the biggest mistakes Dayton did last night was not this kid's a freshman. He's three games into his career. This kid was awesome. Hitting threes all over the place. He's out on the break acting like a point guard at 6'8". Mongolia! Was that even a thought 40 years ago? Oh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get professional basketball players out of Mongolia. As it turns out, his dad was a uh, seven-footer and was actually the first Asian member of the Harlem Globetrotters. But this kid actually, he was born here when his dad was you know, going around with the Globetrotters. And this kid is completely Americanized. But with an international game. Man, it was fun to watch. I'm like, Mongolia is now feeding the United States potential professional basketball players. It's crazy. You know, you know who I met yesterday? Kaspars Kambala's son, Angelo. Kaspars Kambala, a Latvian semi-pro basketball player, former, I would imagine. But uh, that was at UNLV. But I met him out at Liberty. We talked about that thing uh, project that I did. I met him yesterday. Oh, yeah? uh, Angelo Kambala, he was in one of the class sports leadership classes. He signed with... Utah Tech. Another hour on the way. Reno will join in. We got more giveaways coming up. Cofield and company here on a busy, busy Wednesday.